Hey there, you're listening to Filmed in Canada. It's a podcast about Canadian movies. If you enjoy what you hear, go to the iTunes store and leave a review for us. It really helps us get noticed. And if you'd like to continue the discussion, you can check out our Facebook page. Just search Filmed in Canada podcast. And you can also reach us by email at filmedincanada at gmail.com. And feel free to go to our website, filmedincanada.net, for our other content and to leave a comment. Thanks for tuning in again. Thanks for downloading again to our artisanal podcast. I'm William. And I'm Chris. And we're going to record this at the end of 2018. How was 2018 for you, Chris? Uh, it was a hell of a year. It went very, very quickly. Mm, indeed, I would uh, concur. It went. I felt it went quick as well. Quick and uh, eventful. Yeah, can I acknowledge that there, you have... Uh brought a new podcaster to be into the world yeah if you you may yeah so i mean congratulations i, I think for a time um <laughs> for a time i i think uh, the dozens of listeners may have noticed that i was a little bit less active you and alexander uh, were um taken over during the film fest period and all that because uh i my wife and i had to spend some time welcoming savannah into our lives <laughs> Congratulations on your baby podcaster. <laughs> yeah, so we're definitely happy to have uh, Anastasia with us. And um, she has, um, she's, she, we've, we've traded sleep for uh, joy, <laughs> I guess. She's, You'll catch up in, in seven or eight, 17 or 18 years, I think. That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, first, we have to get through uh, the sleepless period. And uh, luckily, have you it's thought also... about putting our podcast on to help her sleep? <laughs> <laughs> um, she does a lot of crying already. I'm not sure if this would uh, contribute to it or, or ease it. <laughs> but um, uh, but this will it'll be helpful actually when uh, she can look this up on the uh, on the um, the archive that is the internet since it it'll, nothing nothing dies on the internet. But uh, it'll give her I think a lot of fodder for those teen years when she hates us. And yeah. she can she can uh, refer to this and say how stupid we are. Well, you better go in and make radio friendly versions where we're not swearing. Oh, I I think these will all be antiquated <laughs> cuss words back <laughs> by the time that uh, right. she gets to listening to it. Yeah. <laughs> um. So uh, let's let's have a Christmas episode. Let's do it. Yeah, and maybe it'll. It's get... the most wonderful time of the year. It's um. Well, you'll love listening to this. <laughs> If you listen I to it triple before. dog dare you <laughs> to not have a great holiday season. Um, if you get to listen to this before Christmas time, it'll be timely, but you could also listen to this in the summer because I, I think um, the best kinds of seasonal seasonal classics, I think you can watch any time of the year, can't you? Agreed. Okay. And this is one of them. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the 1983 film A Christmas Story. Um, and you can tell us, uh, how you felt about what we say, uh, by emailing us or, uh, commenting on our, uh, to us on Twitter or, um, on our, on our Facebook page, which is, uh, Films in Canada podcast. You can po you can share your pictures of, uh, how a piggy eats. If you know how a piggy <laughs> eats, you can show us on Facebook. <laughs> a Christmas story. 
this might be stretching it a little bit when we say it's Canadian content. Do you think, or do you does this fall right into Canadian content for you, Chris? Uh, well, it's not a it's not a perfect fit, mm-hmm. but I think given where it was filmed and the fact that it um, that it won two Canadian awards would certainly put it in that in that group. I mean, you can't take something like Ghostbusters, which did some shooting in Toronto and was written by Harold Ramis and say, oh, that's a Canadian movie. I think it can't really be considered a Canadian movie unless it's been nominated for Canadian awards. That seems like if... They're some, doing the work for me. They're telling me sure. they think it's some Canadian. Some official body has so, said yeah. it's Canadian film. So I, I will say that if they say that, I agree. Okay, and which, which are the awards that it won? It won Best Director and... <laughs> and another one. I'm best sorry. screenplay. Yes, best original screenplay and best director. At which words? At the genies. Ah, well, there's acknowledgement for the gen- from genies. I, I believe also that actually the best director award it tied. Am I uh, am I correct in saying that? Oh, I don't know. What did it tie with? It tied with David Cronenberg, who had made Videodrome that year. You're kidding. Yeah. So when you guys talked about the Videodrome on a previous episode, did you know that it had tied with A Christmas Story? I, I'm not, I don't recall if we mentioned that. I don't know I if we actually I feel like that's new information down. to me. But okay. um, This is just from the internet, and I, so it could be, I think it was from a Wiki, Wikipedia page about something. So maybe okay. it was a Wikipedia page about, um, about Nutmeg. So it might not be entirely accurate, but uh, that's what I saw. Huh. Well, that's weird. I mean, those are two. Those are two radically different Canadian movies, tonally. Yes, I would say in the same year. Yeah, yeah. And this um, is our third Bob Clark movie. We've also had three talks about David Cronenberg. So there you are. Mm. There are leading. Are they nice our leading symmetry. directors? I guess so. On this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, so we're stretching a little bit to say it's Canadian content, but uh, we also stretched it a bit when we said Porky's is Canadian content. Right. Yeah, because Bob Clark is an American director, but he he made his career in Canada during the uh, tax shelter years, and and Porky's was made with Canadian money, but it was filmed in Florida. Um, There's just a couple of Canadian actors in it, um, and so uh, um, that was ninety. Sorry, eighty two, eighty one. Porky's. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, and then in the summer of eighty two, he films Porky's two the next day for release in summer of 83 and um but then in the winter of 83 he, he films a christmas story for release in november of 83 so this one is like really on the fast track it seems right um so maybe the success of porkies uh directly or indirectly lets bob clark have the chance to make this movie uh, a Christmas story, because uh, and I, I notice in the credits there aren't the usual Canadian institutions that mm-hmm. are listed. There's no Telefilm or That's NFB, right. so it and it's distributed by MGM. Um, so maybe because of the success of Porky's, he has the clout to just say, "I want to make my kind of movie." And well, once to, you've made Porky's, you're an auteur, an right? Oh, so for sure. Yeah. Probably like Steven Spielberg, you're one of the only people to get final cut when you've made something. <laughs> yeah. That's such a great contribution to film history. Yes. yes. So, um, and I think those are the two things cited for it when you look at his career is uh, Porky's and a Christmas Story. But well, and Black Christmas because I think it was the first slasher movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I didn't know, but when doing research for this podcast episode, uh, he was also nominated for two Razzies 
oh, in his career. Yes. Do you want to take a guess at what those Razzies might be? With later in his career? Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. So was the one about talking babies? Yeah. Yeah. What was that one? It was uh, <laughs> Super Babies, Baby Geniuses 2. Ah, uh, okay. How did you know that? I think I just kind of knew he did one of those talking baby movies, oh. but it wasn't the one with Kirstie Alley, John Travolta. Right. Yeah. And, and what's the other one? Uh, you probably won't believe it. It's the movie Rhinestone. With Sylvester Stallone? <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. And Dolly Parton. Yeah. Ah. I had no idea that was a Bob Clark film. Nor did I. Yeah. Um, so he, in his later career, he had the clout to have the biggest stars in his movies. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, a Christmas Story takes place in Holman, Indiana, but it's filmed in Cleveland, Ohio, and Toronto. And uh, it's uh, based on a based on a novel and inspired by the works of is it John Shepard or Gene Shepard? Gene Shepard. Gene Shepard is an American storyteller, satirist, uh, radio personality. So, so he did a thing where uh, I guess he he told semi semi autobiographical stories, or maybe they were just autobiographical stories. But I, I think it uh, hit that um, that nostalgia. Um, bone for a lot of people, and uh, so Bob Clark heard his radio show and was inspired to um, to to make something from his works. Would you do you think like Gene Shepard? Do you think he's like um, comparable to a Stuart McLean in Canada? Yeah, like a Garrison Keillor, Stuart McLean, mm. that kind of folksy. Uh, I'm telling the story of a town or a time in a kind of folksy, charming way. Yeah, I would say that Stuart McLean and Garrison Keillor. Yeah, Gene Shepard are similar, though. I Garrison Keillor's aren't necessarily autobiographical. He sort of made a town, but it's based on living in Minnesota. Minnesota, mm, where there's a lot sure. of Lutherans and they drink, they eat yeah. gefilte fish. So if if they weren't like personal stories, but they Lutefisk. were certainly they were they certainly had that that character of he is from this period, this time, right. this place. And yeah. I think that's that's part of the appeal of, of, of those kinds of radio shows. It's almost like a, like a Norman Rockwell painting mm-hmm. on the radio. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and um, I don't think anyone's made any movies out of Stuart McLean's works, the late Stuart McLean. No, but I'm surprised it isn't something that has been developed by telefilm mm. or, you know, some other... Seems overdue. Doesn't it? Especially since he's he's only, he's he's been gone for two years. Yeah. Yeah. But but with the, the like we were we were quick as a culture to uh, to lionize um, Gord Downey. Yeah. So, but Stuart McLean hasn't had that treatment. So Paul Gross is Dave. <laughs> no. <laughs> Can't you picture that though? I can picture that. Almost, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. maybe it's in the works. Yeah. Jennifer Daly is Morley. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Um, background of the movie. Did you want to talk anything? Talk about the cast or anything? Or sure. Wanna... It stars uh, Melinda Dillon, Darren McAvin, and Peter Billingsley plays Ralphie. So the so the main cast are all Americans again. Yeah. Um, so Melinda Dillon. I think most memorable from Close Encounters yep. of the third kind, just to be specific. <laughs> Darren McGavin, he was one of the original Darrens on Bewitched. And, uh, and Peter Billingsley. He was on a show called Real People. And I'm not sure if you remember, it was sort of a 
God, I, we didn't have infotainment in the 70s and 80s, but whatever the equivalent would be of a kind of news-type show of just sort of folksy things happening around America. Um, and he was one of the when he was one of the little hosts when he was like eight or nine. Oh, okay. So it was like Skip Stevenson. God, I can't remember who the rest mm-hmm. of the people. Byron Allen, Peter Billingsley. Yeah. So he put, he totally made a career out of being the child actor and, mm-hmm. and in Hollywood. Yeah. yeah. I think now he is a producer or something. Yeah, he's yeah. part of Vince Vaughn's uh, producing team. So he is one of the producers of F is for Family, now streaming on mm-hmm. Netflix. Yeah. Uh, I saw one of his recent pictures on the internet and. Now he looks kind of like Darren McGavin, I think. <laughs> Don't you? Did you? I haven't see seen Peter Billingsley like, as a forty-something man. Okay, yeah, but it's, I just thought it was weird that um, that they <laughs> cast a kid who turned out to look like the dad. <laughs> yeah. so. Um, oh, so we don't get into Canadians in the cast until we get a little bit further down the roster. There's uh, Zach Ward is the bully, Scott Farkas, <laughs> and uh, Teddy Moore is the teacher of Miss Shield. So they're both from Toronto. Can I say that Scott Farkas's name is so onomatopoetic? I mean, when you say the name Farkas, you can't help but sort of grimace when you say it. And yeah. then you see it, Scott Farkas in his yellow eyes yeah. and his hey! It is it's, horrible. It's the perfect name for a bully. It's the perfect name. Yeah. So it's sometime in the 40-ish. 40-somethings. Yeah. Uh, and it's a story of Ralphie Parker, I think is, no, is that his last name? I think it is. Yeah. yeah. Ralphie Parker, who wants a Red Rider BB gun. Uh, Carbine action, 200 shot, <laughs> range model air rifle with a... Thing that tells time. The thing that tells time. <laughs> <laughs> and a uh, and compass in the stock. Yeah. And a compass in the stock. Uh, but no one wants him to get the BB gun because uh, he'll shoot his eye out. So it's about Christmas being the the most important holiday in a kid's life and all the sort of nostalgia around the most important holiday of the year. I think I think this is one of those movies that people would call episodic because there's like little mm-hmm. little um, mini stories that have to that develop and, and conclude, right? But they, uh, I think they, they, they've they've lent themselves to uh, like iconic cinematic scenes, um, like involving um, the tongue on a frozen flagpole, <laughs> yeah. the uh, the leg lamp, um, a, uh, a visit to visit to the mall Santa. Um, there's the uh, the orphan Annie decoder ring, and of course uh, facing up to the bully Scott Farkas. So there's a lot of. There's a lot of really memorable moments in this movie that I think people, if they haven't seen it for a long time, I think they would remember those scenes. And if you see it for the first time, I think it just feels like these scenes are have always been in movies. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Agree. Yeah, agree. Yeah, and it's not like they're disparate so they don't hang together. It is episodic in these little vignettes, but it isn't like the whole movie doesn't completely hold together seamlessly, even though it is sort of basically a group of short stories. Mm-hmm. about different parts of Ralphie's leading up to Christmas Day. Yeah, it seems like it takes place all in the span of a few weeks. But um, yeah, but but it seems like it takes forever because there's all these mini stories that have to resolve. Um, the first maybe 20 minutes, the, the, the first setup of, of the whole thing, I thought it flowed really well, though, because it goes from each of these little story points to develop the whole picture. Like it, um, there's, we see like, Randy, the little brother in the snowsuit. <laughs> right. So we have that episode. Um, 
And, and then that plays out like throughout the movie. The, it's a running gag that he's in this uh, in the snowsuit that doesn't let him move. Um, but we go from that to uh, the tongue on the flagpole, and by the time that that resolves, we have the, the teacher asking Ralphie to uh, write the theme essay about what you want for Christmas, and um, and then there's the there's the encounter with Scott Farkas, and then that uh, resolved just in time so that he can get into the uh, decodering. Um, so everything is just really flowing one into the other, and it feels like it's all on the same day. And I was really uh, I was really impressed by how it seemed like all of these things would hang together because it was it it seemed like one focused narrative. Right. Um, but then I think it it feels episodic when. With each day that passes, um, it seems like he has there's, there's like this there's like one update to each story point, um, the, um, to each of the story arcs, and then there's like this uh, the, like an iris out, iris in type of effect. Right. And I think that kind of makes it feel like there's like a chapter break or something. And I think right. I think that gives a sense that it is taking longer than um, than the ninety minute runtime. That uh, that it is uh, more episodic because uh, it's, it's almost like every day only one event happens, whereas in that first day it seemed like everything happened. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, but but I, I think uh, I, I, it's just an observation. Just that's just kind of the texture of the movie, and uh, it doesn't didn't really turn me off. I'm just uh, just just commenting. Well, it was uh, Bob Clark wrote it with Gene Shepard and Gene Shepard's wife, whose name is Lee Brown. So I didn't realize when I saw the credits that Lee Brown and Gene Shepard were married. Oh, I didn't either. And Bob Clark does a cameo in the movie as the neighbor who, when we see the warm glow of electric sex in the window with the leg lamp, one of his neighbors comes over and starts chatting with him, and that's Bob Clark. Oh. Gene Shepard is in the movie as well as someone in Higby's department store, but I couldn't quite figure out who it was um, by the description. And I don't know what Gene Shepard looks like, and I kind of know what Bob Clark looks like. Mm -hmm. So Okay. Dean Shepard apparently is in it as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm picturing it back into my mind, and, and the neighbor does. I think that's how I would, I would imagine Bob Clark looked like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, there was a. I watched a documentary called uh, "Road Trip for Ralphie" by two Canadians named uh, Tyler Schwartz and Jordy Schwartz, and they are huge uh, fans of A Christmas Story. So they took a two year, made it to over two years, made a documentary about finding all the milestones and locations for this movie, including going to Cleveland for the unveiling of a Christmas story house, which has been preserved in Cleveland. And it's like a little museum that you can walk through and there's a Red Ryder BB gun. And, you know, they've sort of replicated the kitchen as it would look in the movie. So these two crazy Canucks uh, make a 90 minute documentary and the firefighters that go and help Flick get his tongue off the flagpole are from Chippewa Falls. And they actually go to Chippewa Falls and see the fire truck, the classic fire truck that was used. And when they pull into Chippewa Falls, it says, Welcome to Chippewa Falls, home of James Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I thought he was from Capus Casing. I guess he's from Chippewa Falls. Oh, okay. And they go to the school ground. Um, in St. Catharines, Ontario, that was the school that Ralphie and Flick and his friends went to as well. Ah. Which is now actually a home for battered women. So hmm. it got decommissioned as a school in 2002. Hmm. Okay. Wow, those are very interesting things. 
<laughs> yeah, these kids are very excited about everything to do with the Christmas story. So mm-hmm. it's pretty low production values, but it's obviously a labor of love for these uh, two amateur filmmakers. Did to you find it this. on YouTube? Or? No, I found it on Prime. Oh, Amazon Prime. Yeah. Okay. I don't have that service, but maybe I'll have to watch it at your place someday. Yeah, it's pretty okay. fun. Uh, the name of that documentary again? It's called Road Trip for Ralphie. Another aspect of how pop culture kind of got on the bandwagon a little bit late, one of those companies that like makes um, different memorabilia for like, like commemorative, commemorative whatevers or statues and, and things for like sports teams or, or comic book characters, uh, one of those companies made the leg lamp. Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> And uh, I think it was at that, that point that I felt like, okay, this is, it's not a cult classic. This is just like a mainstream classic if you're going to make that kind of a product. Oh, agreed. Yeah. And uh, yeah, anyway, I, I didn't buy it, but uh, <laughs> I just thought at that point, it's just, you know, I, I think it's accepted as a classic. I think so too. I mean, I, it was released for uh, American Thanksgiving in 1983. But it didn't do very well at the box office. So I guess like It's a Wonderful Life, which also didn't do very well at the box office, somehow it gained ground. And I don't know if it was through Turner Broadcasting that started airing it 24 hours a day leading up to Christmas or on Christmas Day it would run it for 24 hours. I can't remember exactly how it got enough traction so that I would see it annually and everyone I knew would see it annually. But um, Mm -hmm. I don't think it had that kind of popularity when it came out and somehow it just got a lot of momentum and i think it is regarded not as a cult classic but as a christmas classic i think familiarity goes a long way if it's just that's the thing you see every season on tv right Right. yeah i mean maybe that's how we people of a certain generation we we would identify the sound of music with christmas yeah even though it's not a christmas movie but we all of us watched it as kids Mm -hmm. every year Mm-hmm. I didn't watch it until it went on TV. Like, I didn't go to the theaters to see it initially. No. Yeah. No, so, me either. I mean, I, yeah. Would it have gotten a big theatrical in Canada for American Thanksgiving? No idea. Yeah, I don't recall. I don't recall. Do you know whatever happened to Randy, the little boy that played Randy? No, I don't know. I don't know either. I was hoping you'd know. Oh, I, <laughs> I just didn't get that far. I know. Neither did I. Uh, well, well, then, at least I wrote down uh, Randy was played by Ian Petrella. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, enjoyed your performance, Ian, but I didn't, uh, sorry, I didn't do any further research on what you got up to. Um, email us and tell us. There's certain elements of the movie that, I mean, I think reflect what it was like to grow up in Cleveland in the 1940s, but I like that his parents had separate beds, kind of like the Dick Van Dyke show and the the Lucy Lucille Ball show where they had separate beds from their spouses. Uh, and the food that they ate was just the beigest food. Like, it seemed like mom was always serving meatloaf, mashed potatoes, white bread, and butter. <laughs> do, you, do you recall seeing anything? Like, they're either eating oatmeal, which is beige, or entrees, which are beige. It seemed like there was a lot of beige food in the 40s. I wouldn't immediately know what to compare it to, but certainly it looked like that home, that family um, was uh, kind of living, existing in this kind of a beige uh, <laughs> culture. Yeah, uh, so nothing. Yeah, nothing stood out in terms of the food until, of course, uh, the Christmas turkey. 
Right. Yeah. So I mean, that one looked like you're like a a Norman Rockwell painting Christmas tree. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> totally the cover of the the Evening Post. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The detail, the period detail. Um, now I think the scenes where um, they're in the town and they go to the big uh, the exterior of, mm-hmm. of the mall and stuff like that. I think those are Cleveland scenes. That's right. Because it looks it it does look like um, an American uh, city, and they have so many vintage cars. That I was just wondering, like, wow, this is it, like it looks like an expensive movie from that standpoint, just to have that much detail in the background. Um, well, um, in the documentary, they interview the car wrangler, uh, but he was based out of St. Catharines, Ontario. So this would mm. have been just the Canadian portion of the exteriors where you have um, vintage cars going past the school, for example. Mm-hmm. So I think they didn't have to have more than like half a dozen of those cars. And some parked on Ralphie Street. No, because the exteriors would have been Cleveland. And then, of course, the classic fire truck. So I think for the Canadian scenes, they mm-hmm. were able to have just less than a dozen classic cars. And they just kind of asked everyone in the town, does anyone have like a Studebaker? Does anyone have a whatever would have been that era? So mm-hmm. the car wrangler was not some polished Hollywood guy. I think he was just like... Uh, like a guy who lived in St. Catharines mm-hmm. who could coordinate these classic cars getting together for the shoot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and there's uh, also, like, it feels like there's a distinction between the neighborhood where Ralphie lives and then the, the city portion where the, the department store is. Yes, yeah. definitely. So, yeah. Um, yeah, for that night scene where they're out watching the Santa Claus parade, mm-hmm. apparently they had 800 extras and it was mine. It was sub-zero. Mm-hmm. So... Must have been pretty, pretty cool yeah. for those extras to <laughs> right. be out there for what I would assume would be like 12 to 14 hours yeah. of shooting. I wonder if they caught a real, uh, if they just happened to be there during a parade or if they That's staged a That's a really good question. I don't know. Yeah. It was filmed in February, March mm-hmm. of 1983. Then that, then they would have had to stage their own parade. I guess they yeah. would have to stage their huh. own parade. Okay. Yeah. I was I was thinking on nostalgia watching the movie because um, that's a word that comes up a lot when people talk about this movie. Except I don't have any experience myself of growing up in the forties. Right. right. But I understand. But I can understand that feeling because it's not about. For me, nostalgia is not about wanting to extend your experience of a certain time necessarily. It's it's about wanting to. It's about remembering what it was when something was new. Um, so I identify with the moments that Ralphie experiences, even if I didn't experience them in the same context that Ralphie experienced them. Um, uh, I'm, for example, I think when, the first time I watched the movie, the scene that really spoke to me was when he says fudge. <laughs> but it wasn't fudge. Yeah, right? that's a scene that I identify with. I know that. I know that. I remember that moment in my life when uh, I said the mother of all words, <laughs> and my parents heard it, and then they and they gave me shit about it. Right. Um, so, in terms of nostalgia, I I remember I remember being of that age and and uh, and going through that experience with your parents. And you were afraid of your dad. Hmm. Do you remember when we used to be afraid of our dads? Because they hit us? Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like when your mom said, wait till your dad gets home, yeah. that scared the shit out of sure. you. Because yeah. when your dad got home, shit was going to get real. Right. Do you think any young person 
little person today is afraid of their dad? I don't think so. Only if they're cutting off their, their cell phone bill. That's, that's <laughs> right. So it was definitely a, a different time. Yeah. And I, what you talk about, the firsts, when, when Ralphie decodes Orphan Annie's message and it ends up, I hope I'm not spoiling this for anyone, it says, be sure to drink your Ovaltine. And he actually says, son of a bitch. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's that loss of innocence. Like, yeah. what? This is just a marketing thing? I'm supposed to be like a super spy. I'm supposed to be helping the world by decoding this. I'm part of this elite group. And all it is is a lousy commercial. Mm-hmm. So we've all had that moment where our first sort of loss of innocence to be confronted by something that is not what we expected it to be. Mm-hmm. Like when you bought those sea monkeys from the back of the comic books, and you're like, it's not really like a mom and a dad and kids. <laughs> They're just Brian Shrimp. It's not that interesting. Was there any other scenes in the movie that, um, that spoke to you personally? I did love the F-word scene so okay. much. Ralphie says, my father worked in profanity the way other artists worked in oil, <laughs> which I love the dad fighting with the... F- furnace mm. i thought that was hilarious uh the easter bunny outfit from aunt clara so good and i i like the tenderness of when ralphie loses his mind and beats up scott Farkas because he's just had a really shitty day because i think he got a c plus on his essay and he just was feeling low and scott Farkas uh ends up being the object of his wrath and when his mom pulls him off and he just looks at her and bursts into tears, there was something just so authentic and lovely about that moment. And she just seemed like the best movie mom ever. Mm-hmm. Washing his face, putting a cold washcloth on the back of his neck and saying, go lay down. Yeah, yeah. And you and know then, she won't give up if he gets abducted by aliens. <laughs> That's right. She's already proven she's an amazing mom. Yeah. I think Peter Billingsley's performance is really good. I mean, Agreed. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just, I think it is, it really strikes the right note um, of this kid who is just on the verge of being a little bit more aware of his world, but he's, the loss of innocence is that, as you said, that's, that's really what is what captured, is what he captures. And, uh, and I love the moment when, after he pretends that he got hit by an icicle. <laughs> yeah. And he turns to the camera with that look like, yes, I got away with it. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> And I like how the mom, again, being the best movie mom ever, doesn't throw him under the bus. She just sort of, while she's slopping mashed potatoes onto everyone's plate, just says, Ralphie got into a fight today without it being something that dad's going to give him the strap for. So Mm -hmm. just such a tender mom. Chris, do you feel the movie is dated if if people were to label it as a dated movie? Or, Or is it more timeless or is it more just like a thing that exists as um that you mentioned um it's a wonderful life no one would ever mistake it's a wonderful life for a contemporary movie but no one would ever hold it against it for being set in its time period and we just accept it as that's when that story happens right and i think i think that's true of a christmas story um I, i haven't heard any calls for people to update it but no. I, maybe I'm not paying attention to the right things, I don't know. and I hope so, I hope nobody does. I hope nobody does yeah. as well. Um, so there's there's a couple of things that I thought really make it feel like it is both 
uh, a, a movie set in the 40s, but also a movie made in the 80s. And um, um, I mentioned before, like, the, there's that, uh, that iris transition effect. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. I mean, that has been used since silent films. Yeah. And it, that really makes it feel kind of old-timey. Absolutely. Yeah. There's also, like, that really, that, that gauzy very soft kind of looking lens like when uh, he's when he's sort of daydreaming about something romantic like mm-hmm. when he thinks the teacher's going to give him an a plus 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 and, the, and it gets sort of, that sort of yeah vaseline lens yeah like the, and, the edges of yeah. the screen are, are, are really fuzzy yeah and, and you can just kind of see through the middle yeah there's like, that look i think isn't done anymore um no yeah and and then there's uh the use of music it they only use uh, Christmas carols, uh, that, and that's diegetic in the movie. Uh, and then they use classical music for non-diegetic music. Oh, yeah, right? good. Yeah. Um, like, I, I think it's Peter and the Wolf when it, it's Scott Farkas' theme. Right. Yeah. And then uh, there's, I think there's another example, um, just Tchaikovsky. And there might be this one that I might spice in later. But, but these are things that while... Um, if you're watching it as a kid, you don't know exactly what it's from, that it's from Swan Lake or it's from right, whatever. Right. Um, it feels like if it, it feels like something that you have seen, I have seen or heard in like a Bugs Bunny cartoon. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And I think that's what makes yeah. it feel like it is kind of t- timeless because it's, it's getting the classics and it's reusing it in this kind of comedic setting. Um, and... Uh, um, I guess it's because the classics never get old. It feels like it'll always be there, right? That's so. If there was like if there was more contemporary music on the soundtrack, I think it would feel maybe uh, a little bit more time worn. But right. they don't do that. Yeah. Now it just gets to exist in that time, which is sometime in the '40s. But because it's not specific, like there isn't even anything recognizable. Like, oh, it's Judy Garland singing this song from "Meet Me in St. Louis." There's none of that. So. It can be perfectly a capsule of a holiday movie that is a classic, but it doesn't show its 80-ness except for Melinda Dillon's hairstyle, <laughs> which is very anachronistic. And even, you know, 20 years ago, that hairstyle bothered me. Too curly? Yeah, it's just an 80s perm. Okay. <laughs> People, women's hair did not look like that in the 40s. They'd have rollers and curlers and pins and, you know, they did all sorts of things so that it would be a very specific look, like the teacher, that kind of hairstyle. Mm, So Melinda Dillon's hair very much looks like an 80s perm. Okay, all right. But nothing, you, nothing else takes me out of the uh, out of yeah. the film. If you put them side by side, I guess I would have, I would have, um, it would have called attention to itself a bit more. But all right, I now that you mention it, all right. <laughs> Sorry, is that now a loss of innocence for you? Mm, yes, I'll never look at '80s perms the same way. <laughs> Nor should you. Mm. It's really a crime. The uh, the mall Santa. Um, <laughs> I, I think it was actually Roger Ebert in his original review. He said it was one of the greatest small Santa scenes in history, in the history of the movies. And, and it's a good one. It's a really good one. Um, the, maybe the scariest small Santa in a movie. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> yeah. And, and the elves are terrifying. Come yeah. on, kid. <laughs> Paul and I love the little kid who wears the aviator, mm-hmm. the sort of the pilot's leather cap. Mm-hmm. And, turns to Ralphie and says, I like the Tin Man. Yeah. I like the Wizard of Oz. 
I like Santa. There's something so perfect about that kid. And Ralphie just doesn't have any time for him. Uh, I'm kind of busy here. Can you leave us alone? <laughs> yeah. Weird that when they get to the city and the parade and all that, there is so much Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Was it because it was the biggest thing to happen to motion pictures, essentially? Oh, okay. I mean, it came right. out in 39, along yeah. with Gone with the Wind. Oh. And I think it was just no one had ever seen like that kind of, you know, movie go from black and white to this very saturated color and it was a musical yeah. so i think it was just like the biggest it would have been a phenomenon i think it would be a oh, like a blockbuster right. like we would have darth vader and, and stormtroopers in all of our holiday parades now yeah right ah i didn't i didn't make that connection but you're right okay so that's another cue to like uh date the movie date right. the setting of the movie ah, right okay right yeah do you want to talk about uh ra 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 do I want to talk about it? Um, yeah, I guess we have to talk about it. Do we have to? Well, I think we do. I was with family on the weekend, and I said I had just watched it in anticipation of this um, episode. And, you know, my family has seen it a hundred times as well. And we said, why doesn't it run for 24 hours anymore? And their suggestion was, maybe because it's racist <laughs> at the end. <laughs> And uh, I felt a little defensive about that. Okay, um, all right. I don't know. I mean, oh boy, this is, sevens of people are going to get very upset about this podcast. Uh, it's so ridiculous and comic mm -hmm. that it doesn't feel in the least mean spirited. So no, I don't. I think don't. It is. I choose I to just it think racist. it's just yeah. it's a it's a comedy punchline. Yeah, delivered in a specific way, but. We're, we're talking about the scene just in case there's someone who hasn't, uh, someone listening who hasn't seen this movie. So uh, the, the family goes for Christmas dinner at a Chinese restaurant and, and it's like a very stereotypical American Chinese restaurant or however you want to describe it. I mean, for example, I mean, the, the, the name of the restaurant is like Chop Suey Restaurant or something like that. Something generically Chinese in that, right. in that regard. And, it's um, like Chop Suey Palace or something yeah. like that. <laughs> And so the the team of waiters come out and they try to sing a Christmas carol, but because they're they're uh, they pronounce their L's like R's and R's like L's, um, it doesn't sound right. But the but like the restaurant manager, he tries to correct them. He tries. Mm -hmm. He says like, no, start over. It's just, yeah. it should sound like this. Right. So it's not it's not that they just don't know better. It's it's really commenting on the fact that they have an accent. Right. right? So um, I think it's funny. I do too. Yeah, and I don't. I don't think it's racist. I think it's. Um, it's. I mean, it's a joke that points at a uh, a difference in cultures, right? But I don't think it's mean. I think it's. I think it's funny in the way that I think like short rounds accent in Indiana Jones and the Last and uh, Temple of Doom is funny. Right. right. Yeah. So I don't think I don't think short round is racist. Do you think short round is racist? There's other things very racist about that movie, but I don't yeah. think it's short round. Yeah, I don't think it's short round. I think there's other elements that might okay. be. Yeah. <laughs> right. But I I can't look at like if you're walking through Chinatown in Vancouver, and I see birds, and I don't know what kind of birds they are, <laughs> dead birds hanging in the windows of some of the shops. I can't help but think of Darren McAvin's line. Uh, it's smiling at us <laughs> because, you know, the places that I grocery shop, a head is generally not attached to the bird body. Mm -hmm. And so when I see a bird head, it I can't help but think of 
yeah. the last scene in a Christmas story. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Oh, uh, and I think my uh, my barbecue duck is almost ready, so we should wrap this up. Well, I'd like to say uh, be sure to drink your Ovaltine. And uh, again, I triple dog dare you to have a very merry holiday season. Well, oh, thanks, Chris. But before we get there, we need to give this a ranking or a rating. Oh, we have oh, to compare no. it with. Would it be another Bob Clark movie or would it be another holiday movie? I think a holiday movie. What else do you watch at Christmas time? Um, I watch It's a Wonderful Life, the Alistair Sim Christmas Carol. I just put a hold on at the library, Preston Sturge's Christmas in July, which I've seen and I love. And then even though it's not Christmas themed, we watch Best Years of Our Lives every year. Okay. Okay. So I say I guess It's a Wonderful Life and A Christmas Carol are the, the standards that we do not go a calendar year without seeing. Okay. Well, then, how about A Christmas Carol? Okay. All right. So um, just because I think It's a Wonderful Life is kind of dark, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. How about A Christmas Carol? Yeah. All right. How do these compare? I would say they're equally excellent. Are they on par with each other? Yep. Uh, I do think so. Wow. Yep. Okay. All right. That's high praise from Chris, who loves Christmas. <laughs> no? You don't? No, not really. Okay. So I think they're really close, too, in terms of, like, uh, really solid, um, now classic holiday fare. So this is a Christmas Carol minus one mm. equals a Christmas story. Yeah. yeah. Right. I appreciate that it's a Christmas comedy that isn't vulgar like, uh, like the Griswolds. And most Christmas stories would be earnest or dark. So it's nice that this is actually a Christmas comedy that tickles your nostalgia bone and is also got great comic timing and makes you laugh. Well said. Okay. Merry Christmas, Chris. And Happy holidays, William. And uh, we hope you'll listen again next year. Yeah. See you next year. <laughs> <laughs>